Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Quoting Elaine Godfrey, writing in The Atlantic, How and whether to bridge the deep and growing ideological divide between Americans has become the ambient question in politics today. Some people seem to believe the best way forward on issues like abortion, gun control, and COVID-19 is to shout and shame across the chasm. Sharon McMahon, who explains the news and unpacks political arguments on her Instagram page, Sharon Says So, has a different approach. Somehow, in an era when our politics have become so deeply entwined with our personal identity, and Americans with different ideologies seem unable to even tolerate one another, McMahon has built something valuable and rare, a place where people can uh, talk kindly to one another and occasionally even change their minds. And uh, this is indeed rare. We thought we'd uh, check in with uh, Sharon McMahon, who joins us. Uh, Sharon McMahon, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, thank you. Um, so I want to get into a little bit of your history. This You didn't set out to, uh, to, to have a very popular Instagram account, I think. No. No, I set out to teach high school, which is <laughs> which is what I did. I was a high school government and law teacher for many years. I was also an entrepreneur and owned other businesses. And I discovered, sort of by happenstance, that there was something more that the public was looking for that came to political discourse, that many people are tired of this left-right binary um, in which we are only allowed to talk to other people who believe precisely the same things that we do. So you taught high school government and law. What, uh, tell me a little bit about that. What were, what were the kind of questions you'd get from the kids? You know, a lot of them are the same questions that adults have today. And many of them, of course, um, many adults today didn't get the chance to ask these kind of questions, or it was many years ago and they've forgotten the answer. It's one of those things where if you don't use it, you lose it in many cases. But the adults want to know many of the same things, which is how does this work? What is possible? Can this happen? Is it, is it true that ABC is going to happen next? Many people are just looking for facts about what is real, what is uh, even remotely legally possible. And the same is true of, of teenagers who actually are capable of far more sophisticated thought than a lot of people give them credit for. A lot of people are suggesting, uh, you know, that's an answer to today's polarization uh, is, you know, to ramp up civics in, in school. Mm. Essentially what you're doing is ramping that up for adults, I suppose. Mm. Well, here's the thing is I think we can all think about an issue that we would like to change in government, whatever that may be in whatever direction that we would like it to be. We can all think of an issue we would like to change, but it is impossible to change a system that you don't understand. You, If you want to change something, you have to know how it works. And so during this time, I've really found many people are hungry for understanding how the system functions so that they can understand how to impact it for themselves in whatever direction they want to see it impacted. So I understand you you were teaching high school government law, you were running a hand yarn dyeing company, and uh, (laughs) then you you moved back to your hometown, I guess, of Duluth, opened a photography studio. Um, I I guess going happily along, then COVID hit, right? And then that's less call for photography. Um, So tell me how, uh, how Sharon Says So began. What was the particular question that was raised, I guess? 
Well, yes, you're you're right that I was an entrepreneur, owned several different businesses, and the COVID made cleared space in my schedule, so to speak, so that I had time to do things like make some little nonpartisan fact-based explainer videos because I started seeing so much misinformation on social media. And I bet everybody here that's listening can relate to that, seeing so much information just being sort of shared virally around the internet. So I decided rather than spend time engaging with 1 million people in the comment section of whatever website they were on, that I would just make these little videos that people could then refer back to, that people could send a link to somebody else if they wanted to, or they could refresh their own memory. So the the first video that I ever made, the genesis of Sharon says so, was a nonpartisan explainer video of how the Electoral College works. And I didn't use real candidate names because even the names of the candidates in 2020 are triggering to some people. Um, if I if I um, use real candidate names, that is in and of itself like, well, I don't want to watch this. This is going to be some kind of XYZ propaganda. So I really went out of my way to make it lighthearted, easy to understand, and by using little props and made-up names, uh, tried to convey this idea of like, listen, I'm not trying to tell you who to vote for. This is just how the Electoral College functions. Uh, and I imagine there were a lot of questions about that, you know, as, uh, even as we approach the election, certainly after it. For I mean, for sure. It, the Electoral College is confusing. It, it is. It's like, it's in fact, it's kind of purposely confusing. It's purposely complicated. Many things about the United States government are intentionally complicated. And I don't mean that as an insult. I just mean that in some cases, those levels of complexity bring stability. What the framers of the Constitution were looking to do was create an incredibly stable system that in some ways was difficult to change. They traded flexibility for stability. And it makes sense from where they were coming from, where they're being ruled by a monarch who has the ultimate flexibility to do whatever they they wanted to do. And in many cases, you know, carried out a lot of injustices in the name of that flexibility. They wanted the opposite. So when you understand that, like, yes, the system is actually purposely complicated because those levels of complexity bring stability. Um, That helps people feel like, okay, so it's not just me then. (laughs) It's not just me that thinks it's complicated. It's actually intentionally supposed to be that way. Hmm. I understand you uh, captioned these videos completely factual and nonpartisan. Of course, that's your aim, but there's, in today's world, there's a danger there, right? If if somebody perceives something in that video that doesn't uh, comport with what they believe uh, I imagine they reject you out of hand. I think that's that's true of you know, very common occurrence in uh, American political rhetoric today, that the standard for objective truth is, do I agree? And if I don't agree, then it's a lie. That has become, in, for many people, the, the standard. Um, and I would, I would suggest that's actually a very dangerous standard, that belief and object, objective truth are two different things in some cases. Um, and so that's something that I work to talk about, that you, you know, facts don't actually require you to approve of them <laughs> for them to be facts. Um, the, you know, gravity doesn't require your approval <laughs> for it to be real. So, I think that's something that we need to explicitly address, that the, the 
standard for truth is not, do I agree? Sometimes the facts are very inconvenient, and I wish they weren't the facts. Um, Sometimes I would very much like to believe something different. That doesn't make it less true. So how one of the reasons this is so helpful, um, you know, the very fact of Sharon says so, and that, uh, the, you know, there's a lot of people on there and willing to kind of have an open mind is the fact that it's, it's not prevalent in, in the country as a whole. How, how uh, maybe tell me a little bit more about how you feel we can get back to facts as facts. Mm. Well, you know, many political leaders have in the past said we can all have our own opinions, and we're all entitled to our own opinions, but we're not all entitled to our own set of facts. And so by focusing on facts rather than my opinions of things, my goal is to help people feel more educated themselves. It's difficult to make an educated opinion or make an educated decision on something if you don't have any education on a topic. So I I view my role more about providing that education so that you can make up your own educated mind. And when you're coming from a place of, okay, these are the facts, even if I don't like the facts, that doesn't make them not true. Um, And when you can get to that place of accepting that and then move forward from there, that is a much healthier place to be as a country than um, perhaps we have seen in, in the recent past. One factor I think you talk about this uh, is empathy, right? We, we we're, we're very short on empathy. It seems like, in fact, we mm. make moral judgments based on how you voted, right? Mm-hmm. Um, so how mm-hmm. do we how do how do we get back for more empathy? For example, um, you you put out some you know videos or slides explaining what Trump voters liked about him. It, 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 it's unimaginable mm-hmm. to, to anti-Trump folks, and then, then the reverse on Biden. I think. Mm. It is. It is. Because here's the thing is, when we are, when we form a judgment about another candidate, say, for example, our information about that candidate or why somebody might vote for them comes from somebody, very often, comes from somebody who actually agrees with us and not necessarily somebody who believes the opposite. So, um, for example, Many people who are against um, the politics of Donald Trump, they would give a list of reasons why somebody might vote for him. Oh, well, they're secretly racist. They're secretly misogynistic. They just want to support the patriarchy, whatever their list of reasons is. But if you ask somebody that actually voted for him, what are your reasons for voting for him? Not on that list. You would never find, I I want to support the patriarchy. That would never be somebody on somebody's list of reasons who actually voted for him. And the exact same thing is true of Biden. Um, It's all true of all candidates. It's not just about Donald Trump. So one of the things that I think is important to do is get the information directly from somebody who actually believes that information. So often we are just making assumptions about why somebody believes what they do. And we don't ever actually ask somebody who truly believes that. And some of that is difficult because we tend to be friends with people who are like us. That is human nature. That's been human nature for thousands of years. We we have selected ourselves into groups. We become friends with people who are similar to us in many ways. And then we find similar groups 
online as well. We find affinity groups. We find, like, I like to do these things. I like to canoe. Me too. I like to vote for this candidate. Me too. And so we continue to self-select into these groups uh, in which our own viewpoints are continuously upheld and supported. And we have a more difficult time finding people to interact with on a meaningful level who believe something different than we do. And I'm not talking about arguing in the comments of a news site. I'm talking about like having a real meaningful conversation. And the fact that we don't have that is a significant contributing problem to, I think, many of the issues of polarization that we're seeing today. You have a feature called Listening to Understand. Uh, Tell me about that and what reaction that's gotten. Many times I will take a challenging topic that Americans are wrestling with, and there are many of them. And I will just put up a little box on Instagram and say, if you are a conservative, tell me how you feel about X. And if you're a moderate, tell me how you feel about X. And if you are a liberal, tell me how you feel about X. Um, And then I will just reshare some of the responses so that other people can hear directly from the people who believe that, what they have to say. Rather than me making a prognostication about, well, X voters believe Y, you can hear directly from people who believe that and with their uh, supporting logic of why they believe that thing. And I think that is something, again, we have difficulty finding that in our own friendships, and our own relationships. So often people who believe differently than us, that, that becomes a contentious relationship. And it can be difficult to listen to understand somebody else's point of view. So often we listen to respond We're listening to what you have to say so that I can mentally pick apart your arguments and respond to what you're saying. We're listening to respond instead of listening to truly understand where someone else is coming from. And this is true of understanding. This is true of respect. This is true of many things. If we want it, we have to give it. If we want to be respected, we have to demonstrate respect to others. If we want to be understood, we must seek to understand. And it's I people have told me, thousands of times. I've never thought of it this way. This is incredibly helpful for me to look at it from the other person's perspective. It doesn't obligate me to agree with a new perspective. That's not the point of listening to understand. It doesn't obligate you to change your mind, but understanding is power. If we do not understand the fundamental core motivations of somebody else, it is difficult to meaningfully move forward from there. Yeah, I think that is uh, difficult. You know, even leaving politics aside, regular conversations, difficult to to listen to understand, right? That's right. right. Yeah. Yes. And is that, uh, what are you hearing from, from, um, you know, your your followers there, people who consume this? Is this being helpful just just to be exposed Mm -hmm. to, you know, the point of view of someone else? Yeah. I mean, I think overwhelmingly it's a positive exercise. It doesn't mean that you're always going to like what other people have to say. Sometimes what other people have to say really makes you bristle, where you're like, oh, I did not like that. That is not, I don't, mm, I don't believe that. Um, and so that, that's understandable, that when somebody believes something very different than you do, very differently than you do, it makes you feel uncomfortable. In fact, that's a natural reaction in your brain is to feel uncomfortable with new information. Um, so I'm not going to pretend that it's always like, oh my gosh, that felt really fantastic. 
was like getting a brain massage. Not everybody feels that way. For some people, it feels very uncomfortable. But yet that discomfort is an opportunity for growth. That discomfort is where the growth happens. You know, like you don't train for a marathon and not have some um, some pain involved in that. You can't just uh, assume that having no pain is what's, what will happen to you when you are seeking to grow in anything, physically or intellectually. So sometimes that discomfort is a tremendous leap forward in intellectual maturity and being able to tolerate that discomfort, what, what therapists often refer to as distress tolerance. It can be distressing to listen to somebody who believes something different than you do and actually work on listening to understand where they're coming from. It can feel distressing in your mind and sometimes in your body. Um, but that is a skill that we can learn and we can practice. We can learn and practice sitting with that discomfort and understanding that that discomfort is helping us grow into intellectual maturity. Um, it's a, it's, again, it's not, some people are born with it and it's easier for them, but it's something we can all get better at. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that is hopeful. Uh, it occurs to me, and I, I've been thinking about this a lot, um, kind of the easy path is to descend into fatalism and cynicism. Um, mm-hmm. Much harder to open yourself up, you know, go forward with sincerity and, and hope that the other person on the other side is going to come with the, those same values. I frequently caution people about not giving in to fatalism, that we must maintain hope for the future. We must maintain a belief that we are the people we've been waiting for, that we actually do have the ability to change things for the better. And I'm not just talking about governmentally. I'm not just talking about voting. I'm talking about in our own communities, in our own lives, in the, in the lives of people that we know and love, that as soon as we began to throw up our hands in despair, that is a much more dangerous place than, than being in the position of, like, I, I may not like what's happening, but I believe that I have a role in making it better. And so often we look at these massive problems that, that the world has, and the world does have massive, massive problems. Um, this is not a, a, a blind optimism. This is I'm very clear-eyed about how difficult and large some of the problems the world is facing are. But we, we have no chance of improving anything if we allow ourselves to give in to a fatalistic view that nothing we say or do matters. As soon as we start believing that, we lose our power to influence for change. So it is very important that we never, in my view, we never slip into that that fatal view of nothing I say matters, nothing I do matters. In fact, most of the big important things that have happened in this country have happened because normal people refused to give up. Normal people refused to uh, abandon hope. In many cases, some of the big things, like let's say women's suffrage or civil rights, they took normal average people, secretaries and ministers and students, it took them decades 
of constant persistence to see the results of their change. But had there not been generations of people willing to work for change despite seeing no obvious results, they would not have been able to build uh, a legacy that we can now look back on and say, you know, thank you for doing that. Thank you for persisting. If people have just per- had given up and given in to fatalism, we would be a very, very different country. Let's take a break. Uh, much more to talk about. We're talking with Sharon McMahon. She's uh, the founder of an, a very popular Instagram page, Sharon Says So. Um, and uh, also, I think, a podcast out there as well. Yes. Yep. Yeah. The Sharon Says So podcast. Yeah. And we're working, I understand, on a memoir. I am working on a book. It's not uh, going to be uh, oh, so a much book. of a memoir, okay. but it is, I am working on a book, yes. Okay, okay. we'll look forward to that. Uh, much more with uh, Sharon McMahon with Sharon Says So following this break. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Sharon McMahon. She uh, has a very popular Instagram page, Sharon Says So. And quoting Elaine Godfrey again, writing The Atlantic, somehow in an era when our politics have become so deeply entwined with our personal identity and Americans with different ideologies seemed unable to even tolerate one another, Sharon McMahon has built something valuable and rare, a place where people can talk kindly to one another and occasionally occasionally even change their minds. Uh, So we're talking with Sharon McMahon on on the program today. Uh, Sharon McMahon, um, I I referenced Elaine Godfrey, interesting article here in The Atlantic. Um, She, uh, one of my favorite parts of this article is is her quest to find out where you stand politically. Of course, she asked you, and you refused. Uh, she became an obsession. She went digging through records, couldn't find, couldn't, couldn't find it. I would imagine it's important, <laughs> important for you to, you know, for people not to know if you're, you're kind of, you're the arbiter here. You're the kind of the trying to bring people together. If people knew where you were, um, then, then probably instant judgments. You know, I always I always used this perspective when I was uh, teaching in the classroom as well. That's that it's actually not my job to just inform you of what I think. That's spoon feeding you information. I would actually much rather have a student who believes something different than I do, but whose opinion is rooted in um, in fact based information, and who is able to clearly articulate their position. Um, with with information that comes from reliable sources, that to me, actually, the process of critical thinking, way more important than getting you to agree with me. So that's, that's been my educational perspective my entire career, is I always wanted students to feel like, well, I don't know what she thinks. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, there's actually a tremendous amount of intellectual value in you see this in law schools, uh, in many university classes. It's called the Socratic method, where uh, a, a, an instructor will ask a student their opinion of something, and then force them to justify that opinion with uh, targeted questioning. No matter if the instructor agrees with the opinion or not, and being forced to justify your opinion with logic and rationality is tremendously useful for that student's intellectual growth. If I just say the correct answer to this very complex societal issue is B, then all that is required of the student is just to memorize the answer B. 
And they're not actually required to put forth any effort and to engage in any critical thinking. So again, my goal has never been about, even throughout my entire educational career, it's never been about getting students to regurgitate or parrot what I think is the correct answer. Some things that are objectively true. For example, the legislative branch makes laws. That's an objective fact that we can memorize. But in terms of opinion-based questioning, way more, in, way more important to me that people think critically than to just parrot back the answers that I have spoon-fed them. Mm-hmm. You, you have put out some, uh, you know, I guess what most of us would hope would be considered facts. Uh, for example, 2020 election was not stolen. You know, that kind of thing. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, and yeah, I mean, yeah, go ahead. That's, that is, yeah. I'm, I mean, I think we, again, we all need to be working. We can all have our own opinions about whether or not um, Donald Trump should have won the 2020 election, whether he was a good president. You're free and entitled to believe what you like. But we all have to agree on the same set of facts. Um, and that is one of them. Hmm. Um, I want to talk a little bit about media. Um, so you, you put out a, a, a video uh, explaining the difference between media bias and disinformation. Um, it's and I have friends who, uh, in this case, conservative friends, who tell me I, I just uh, I'm done with mainstream media. Don't believe anything they say. Um, mm-hmm. Which, in my view, puts them in a dangerous position because then they're, you know, they run into the arms of, uh, you know, whoever. Um, but uh, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about that. Uh, this this mistrust in the in the media um, versus disinformation. Mm. Yeah, you're right. That the the distrust in the media and in government institutions is at a, at an all time high, and in some ways, you can understand why. You can understand why those seeds have been planted and why they have taken root and why they have grown. Um, One of the things that I like to talk about frequently is the different ways that media sources characterize information. And I like to make sure that we differentiate between the characterization of information and whether or not something is based in fact. So I'll give you an example. Um, A number of months ago, Congress was working on passing this massive infrastructure bill, right, that was going to give rural broadband and fund roads and bridges and all kinds of things. It's a very, very large bill. Um, Money is spent over 10 years. It's billions of dollars. And if you look at different news sources and the way that that was characterized, and then the facts that are given in the article, I think so often people just read headlines and be like, well, they're just lying. So, for example, um, CNN ran a headline that said something to the effect of, help is on the way. And then the article went on to uh, list out Here's how much money it is. Here are the programs that are covered. It's going to happen over 10 years. Here's who voted for it and who didn't. So the article itself has all of the facts. Um, But the way that the facts were characterized is, wow, this is a great thing that's going to help America. And so often people are unable to distinguish between the characterization or the bias angle and what the facts are, that you can actually be very rooted in facts and still have have a left or right bias. So then when we look at that same story 
um, run by a news outlet like Fox, the headline said something to the effect of monster bill jammed through Congress. And then the article went on to list out, here's what the bill is going to do, here's how much it's going to cost, here's who voted for it, here's what the program's covered. They Both of the articles gave most of the facts surrounding what this bill does, who voted for it, what it will cover, how much it will cost taxpayers. But the characterization of those facts is was very different. Monster bill jammed through Congress versus help is on the way. And I think that that media literacy component is something that we need to start taking very seriously. Um, this is something that I think even media organizations need to become more cognizant of um, and talk about more explicitly. Because uh, when if all you read was the headline, you would have a very different viewpoint of what was actually happening. Most people don't have time to read seven hours worth of news stories a day. That's just not reality. So there's a difference between bias and lie. Those things do not mean the same thing. And so often when you hear, like your friend is saying, I just don't um, everything that the mainstream media says is so biased, I just don't believe it. Um, that person is failing to understand the distinction between what a bias is and what a lie is. And they are, it's an important distinction. Mm-hmm. I, uh, I work with uh, student interns and uh, teach some incoming freshmen. I, I, I tell them, um, you know, make sure you have a broad range of media, you know, not, not just New York Times or mm-hmm. Wall Street Journal, and make sure especially that you consume uh, media from uh, opposing viewpoints. I don't know if that's something yes. you endorse. Yes, absolutely. Um, to the extent that somebody is able to. Obviously, I'm very cognizant of the fact, again, these are normal people, normal lives don't have all day to read the news. But I do think it is important to have a, have just like you would want to eat a broad variety of fruits and vegetables, you would want to, to consume a broad variety of news sources. Um, if for no other reason other than to observe how the facts are being characterized by people who maybe believe differently than you do. And that actually is very useful information for you to understand that, like, wow, there are a lot of people who think that this bill is fantastic and that it's going to help people. Well, why is that? Or perhaps, wow, people think this bill is just a horrible idea. Why? Why do they think it's terrible? Answering that question with curiosity Instead of just being certain about what you think the other side already knows, that curiosity is really the, you know, the little toe in the door, toe in the proverbial door uh, to having meaningful conversations with people. You're quoting this article um, um, saying that, uh, I'll just quote this, the staggering number of queries that she gets talking about you isn't disheartening. Uh, It shows that people don't want to believe things that are wrong. They want to know uh, things that are real based on facts. Mm. I know. I Every day, I almost every day, I put up a question box in my Instagram stories asking, you know, how can I help? What is, what's on your mind today? What are you wondering about? And every day I get many thousands of questions. I've received somewhere around 10,000 DMs a day. Um, and... Some people sometimes ask me, like, isn't that disheartening that there are so many people who don't understand what's going on? And I feel the opposite. And I think any teacher would agree. When a teacher says, okay, who has questions? 
when students actually raise their hand and ask questions, that shows engagement. That shows interest. That shows that you you want to better understand the information so you can interact with it in a different way. Um, I think all teachers would would get what I'm saying when I say large numbers of questions to me are encouraging. They're hopeful. It, I don't view it as a like, oh my goodness, the nation has failed. No, I view it as many, many hundreds of thousands of Americans coming together um, out of concern, out of care, and wanting to know more and be better than we were in the past. Uh, of course, we just had the big ruling on Roe v. Wade. You've you've done um, you know Zoom sessions on abortion, deep dives, and I'm guessing mm-hmm. you're getting questions on abortion. What kinds of questions are you getting? Mm, lots of questions on abortion. It's a very long, long, long opinion. It's over 213 pages. I have a whole breakdown of it saved in the highlights of my Instagram. And one of the biggest questions that I'm getting right now is about um, Clarence Thomas's concurring opinion about whether, you know, I'm not sure if you've read it, but Mm -hmm. the concurring opinion talks about substantive due process and how he does not believe substantive due process is, is a real legal principle, and that substantive due process cases um, should be up for consideration in the future. And those kind of cases involve things like um, same-sex marriage, the right to access contraceptives, th- that sort of thing. So that topic is um, of great concern to a number of people. Is this going to, is this opening the door to um, to bigger things. Lots of people want to know the answer to that question. Um, other people want to know what it is going to look like from here, because this ruling, of course, does not ban abortion in the entire country. It, it permits not just states, but also Congress permits elected representatives at the federal and state level um, from regulating it in the manner that they see fit. It says, the decision says repeatedly, this is for voters and their elected representatives. And so people want to know what does that look like? What does it look like for where I live? What do I do if I live in a state that doesn't agree with my viewpoint? How can I, how can I encourage my state to act in the way that I want them to? Um, a lot of people want, they want information about how they can impact their state legislature. So those are two topics that are highly, highly on the minds of people in my community right now. You do, as I mentioned, uh, some Zoom sessions, right, on on big mm-hmm. topics. You've done one on abortion. Um, what was the reaction? I'm interested in the reaction of, of people. It seems like, you know, you say abortion, it seems like the third rail. You don't even want to go there, and there, there can't be mm-hmm. any agreement at all. Uh, I wonder what your experience has been. Well, I made a point of approaching that topic just from the perspective of we're just going to talk about what the laws are and what the Supreme Court says. We're not going to cast in this class. I'm not going to tell you how to feel about these things. You are welcome to continue to believe whatever it is that you believe. And it is not my goal to try to change your mind or dissuade you from believing that. So that was how I characterized this workshop was Whatever you believe, you are free to continue believing that, and I will not tell you otherwise. This is purely for additional education about things like what the previous Supreme Court rulings have been, what they, what kind of legal rationale they used, and what the current laws are 
federally and in various states. So now it's going to be a very evolving topic. We're going to see um, such a massive patchwork of laws around the country, and that has already started from some states declaring themselves abortion sanctuaries, where they will actively welcome people who are coming from other states seeking the procedure, all the way to states banning it for all reasons, including um, including rape and incest. So we're going to move into an, an interesting legal time of um, re- returning to states being able to make uh, the rules that they see fit. So that's that's an emerging, it's going to be an emerging field that we're going to be talking about as the um, next year or so wears on. Mm. Um, I noticed uh, you, you did... Uh... You did write a post on uh, the Udivaldi shooting, uh, following the Udivaldi shooting, mm-hmm. right? Uh, mm-hmm. I just want to read this, and this uh, this should not be controversial, but I could see gun rights people maybe taking this, uh, you know, a different way. Uh, this is Sharon McMahon. If, like me, you're out, feel outraged and uh, enraged, rather, and physically ill about helpless teeny humans shot to death in cold blood at their school in Texas, you should. We all should. We should not turn our faces away because it's too painful. We should feel enraged, and then we should do something. What was the reaction from your uh, your followers, mm. in, just in general oh, or to this post? Overwhelmingly, yeah, very positive. They agree with me. Nobody thinks it's okay for children to be shot in schools. Nobody thinks that. Um, the question is, what should we do about it? And uh, the the answer is, we should stop doing nothing. We sh- the answer is not we should just sit back and, and let our children be massacred in their fourth-grade classes. Um, I don't think anybody thinks that. So if we want to have meaningful discussions about, like, how can we protect our children in school, um, it's time we move past this notion of um, I, I am the only arbiter of good ideas, and if you don't agree with me, then get out of my Instagram page, which is, you know, how some people operate, um, and and away from this idea that only one person can have uh, meaningful ideas about a very complex topic. Um, and guns in America are an extremely complex topic um, for a huge variety of reasons, and one of them being that we have more guns than people in this country, and regulating them is very challenging. Um, it, we have to consider matters of practicality. What does it look like to um, protect our children in school? And when some people say, well, we should just have armed guards at every school, um, there, are, there are many, many tens of thousands of schools in the United States. Um, we have to consider the practical matters of things like, how will we pay for that? How will we pay the um, potentially billions of dollars to pay for those things. And I'm not saying we shouldn't. I'm just saying there are, this is so multifaceted that we have to move beyond this binary of, well, sometimes kids get shot in school because of the Second Amendment and that's how it is, or um, take everybody's guns away. Those are not the only two options. This is a far more nuanced conversation than many people are having. Those are not the only two options. Um, and I refuse to believe that the only option is to do nothing. Mm. We should note Congress did pass some uh, gun safety legislation. It's been mm-hmm. s- signed into law by President Biden. Um, uh, let's uh, let's take another break. When we come back, more our, our last segment with uh, Sharon McMahon. Uh, she has a, a popular Instagram page, Sharon Says So, where uh, 
people uh, actually come together and uh, minds are changed sometimes. Um, maybe shouldn't be unusual, but it is, and it's kind of a, a helpful thing that uh, this, this page exists and the, these, these followers are there. We'll have more with Sharon McMahon following uh, this break. Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. We're talking with Sharon McMahon. She is uh, the founder of a, uh, a popular Instagram page, Sharon Says So. And uh, we have another uh, about 10 minutes left in this conversation. Uh, Sharon McMahon, I understand that uh, one of the largest concentration of Sharon Says So followers is in Utah. Is that so? And why, yes. do, you, why do you think that is? It is, and I think that's fantastic. I love it. I love Utahns. Um, my husband went to grad school in Utah, and so it is a little surprising to me. Um, but to me, what it says is that um, the values of many Utahns and my values align. Um, that's that's a very, it's just a very clear message that I've received from many of my followers in Utah, that um, what they're finding about politics elsewhere in the world does not align with their values, um, that they... Many Utahns believe strongly in the importance of civic engagement, but they don't want to do it in a way that increases hatefulness. They don't want to do it in a way in which you can't love your neighbor. They don't want to do it in a way that um, forces us to pit A versus C. Um, so I think that's really, I think that's at the heart of it, is a value alignment. Mm-hmm. Uh, Lynn Godfrey, who referenced, she wrote this article in The Atlantic, Profiling You. Uh, she says the women who first introduced her to your page are former Republicans and members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints who voted for Biden. So I guess uh, some of those similar values maybe hold conservative viewpoints, but uh, don't like the tone, don't like the dismissing of each other and, mm-hmm. you know, uh, uh, painting each other as traitors and that kind of thing. That's right. I think that's very true, and I, I have a number of friends that um, live in Utah, and I, I think that many Utahns also believe in this idea that there has to be um, a middle way. There has to be a third way of engaging in topics like this. It does not have to be, um, I either scream at people about Biden or I scream at, pe- about, I scream at people about Trump, that those are not the only two options that exist. I uh, understand as well that uh, many of your uh, your followers uh, consider themselves politically homeless. What mm-hmm. is what does that say? Do you think? Mm. I think you know the probably if you did a nationwide poll and said, "Do you feel like the Republican Party or the Democratic Party um, accurately represents all of your views?" I think you'd find that the majority of Americans would say, no, I don't feel like that. You know, like I might feel like I lean more to the right or the left, but I maybe I'm a Republican who is against the death penalty, or maybe I'm a pro-life uh, Democrat. There are many people, I mean, and you see this borne out in statistics with the incredible rise of people who are registered independent voters. Um, in some states, as much as 60% of voters now identify as independent and not aligned with a particular party. Um, I think you're seeing 
more and more people become disillusioned with this right-left binary, that it's either the Republicans or the Democrats. They don't feel like either one represents what they believe. And they would like there to be um, more emphasis on on speaking with each other so we can collaborate on getting all of the best ideas. You know, I once had a a woman on my podcast who has worked at the Pentagon for many years, and she works, um, has been, her entire adult career has been in national security. Um, And she works, she's a judge advocate general in the military. She's also an attorney. And one of the things that she says is very uh, prevalent in the national security community and, and that they continually work on is that they do not want to have groupthink where everybody believes the same thing. They want to have a variety of viewpoints at the table. And that is, for people in national security, that is a matter of national security importance. If you have everybody at the table who all believes the same thing, and nobody has any new ideas, nobody has any new viewpoints, nobody is offering an alternative perspective, what ends up happening is that we develop massive and glaring blind spots. We should be able to take all of the best ideas, no matter what party somebody aligns with. It doesn't, the Democrats don't have the lock on every good idea, and neither do the Republicans. And we should not be dismissing out of hand, in my opinion, an actually really good idea because it came from a party that we didn't vote for. There have been studies done at Yale that, that demonstrate this, that if you tell somebody, here's an idea that came from the party that you voted for, People are like, yeah, I love it. But let's do that idea. And then if you present the same idea and say that it came from the opposing party, people are immediately opposed to the idea. Um, and I think that's dangerous. I think that's terrible for America. We should be willing to accept good ideas from anybody, no matter what party they align with. Um, and that's just not happening right now. Do you think what you've just been talking about will ever translate to success for a third party? Mm. I think there are a few things conspiring against third parties in the United States that make it difficult for them to gain traction. And I would never say never. Again, I don't believe in fatalism, but there's a a few things. One of them is campaign finance. It obviously requires a tremendous amount of money to win, win especially large elections in the United States. Um, And many times it can be difficult for a third-party candidate to raise the amount of money that's required to win. So that's one thing that's challenging. And and in terms of the presidency, the other thing that's challenging is the Electoral College that that, uh, funnels votes into winner-take-all in in 48 out of 50 states. Um, And that winner-take-all system makes it difficult for a third-party candidate to rack up enough electoral votes. So those two things make it challenging. But again, it doesn't mean that things can't change. We invented the system and we can we can change the system if we want to. We're not there's actually no reason we can't other than we just haven't tried hard enough. We don't have the political will to make those kind of changes happen at this point. So I do think that the the movement is growing. More and more people are expressing distaste for being forced to choose one party or another. Um, and I do think we're going to continue to see, and you saw this in Utah, too, where the Democrats have decided to run an independent candidate because they feel like it's their best chance at winning. Um, it's 
I think you're going to see more movement out of that strong binary as the next decade or so goes on. Just have a couple of minutes left in the conversation. Uh, I'd like to give you a chance to maybe give us your top takeaway. What what uh, what do you hope people take away from th- this discussion when thinking about you know the kinds of things you put on your page? Sharon says so. Mm. I think it's always important that we keep in mind that all of us can do something, and that we are not. Um, victims of the system, that we actually can change it, and that most of the change that has been, that has occurred in this country has been enacted by small, normal, everyday people banding together and working hard for a long period of time. So often we, we want, um, we want huge changes, we want revolutionary change, and we feel like this change is long overdue and I'm not willing to accept anything less. And I do understand that. I get that. There are issues that I feel that way about, too. Um, but we have to understand that that small changes are still forward progress. And those small changes can build momentum. Those small changes can become something bigger. And we should not turn our faces away from those small changes. We should not stop celebrating small forward progress just because it's not as big as we want it to be. Um, and all of us can have a hand in making those small changes that create that forward momentum. None of us can do everything, but all of us can do something in our communities, in our families, in our houses of worship, in our government. None of us can do everything, but all of us can do something. And instead of feeling like, oh, there's no way I can fix that. I cannot fix education in all of America. Instead of just feeling like, I can't fix it, so I'll just sit back and do nothing. Ask yourself, what can I do? What is my role in this? And in some topics, you might have a tremendous amount of expertise. You might have a lot of connections that you can make a big impact. And in other topics, you might not know much, and your your impact might be supporting others that do know more. But we should not relegate the uh, change-making to only other people. We all can do something. Well, Sharon McMahon uh, has a popular Instagram page, Sharon Says So, this podcast as well. And uh, Sharon McMahon has been telling us about it. Uh, interesting discussion. Sharon McMahon, thank you so much for coming on. Mm, my pleasure. Thanks for inviting me. And thanks, everyone, for listening to Access Utah.